Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Dozman. The 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche stands among the canon's most cited figures, with aphorisms dotting texts on a variety of topics, and his name evokes a strong response from almost anyone who has ever heard of him. His aphoristic and poetic writing style have made it difficult at times to understand what he meant, although the wealth of commentaries pulling him in a variety of different directions points to the fact that he did mean something. On the political right, he has been credited as an influence among many reactionary political movements, but even on the left, he is cited as an emancipatory figure, suspicious of the powers that be. Aside from these, his writings on art and psychology have remained influential for many. It would seem then that there are numerous Nietzsche's one can pull from, and due to the loose nature of his writing, one would seem to be warranted in reading Nietzsche a bit more freely. However, that freedom and flexibility misses that there may in fact be a unifying thread to Nietzsche's thought, and it may in fact be a much darker thread than many of his apologists have realized. This is the main argument of the book we'll be discussing today, Domenico Lacerdo's Nietzsche, the Aristocratic Rebel, Intellectual Biography and Balance Sheet. Originally published about 20 years ago in Italian, it has recently been delivered to English audiences by Gregor Benton and with an introduction by Harrison Fluss as part of the Historical Materialism book series. Clocking in at just over a thousand pages, it is both a literal and figurative bombshell, delivering a rigorous and systematic account of Nietzsche's thought. A major part of the book's length comes from the fact that Lacerda refuses to treat Nietzsche in isolation, and instead spends a large amount of time recreating Nietzsche's various contexts. 19th century Germany and Europe more broadly, as a way of making the political orientation of Nietzsche's thought all the more explicit. Through his investigation, Lacerdo reveals a Nietzsche who is committed to fighting against the democratic movements happening all around him, and being an advocate for a superior elite at the expense of everyone else, whose main purpose in life is to serve them. Context is important to any biography, including intellectuals often assumed to be above the fray of their own times. Lacerdo's work goes above and beyond in placing Nietzsche in context, although what sets this book apart from other commentaries is how and why he uses this context. Usually, placing a thinker back into their time has the effect of toning down remarks and ideas that have aged poorly. Comments that have aged poorly are shown to have been commonplace in the time they were originally made and may have even been progressive by older standards. That does not happen here. Instead, placing Nietzsche in context allows Lacerdo to show that Nietzsche was not simply a product of reactionary times, but was instead a committed reactionary fighting the progress happening all around him. Lacerdo also shows that there is a particular genius to Nietzsche not shared by many of his contemporaries. He had a keen awareness of what was going on around him, and understood what would be required to combat the emancipatory movements he saw. It was this understanding that sets Nietzsche apart from various other thinkers who have certain reactionary elements, 
but do not have the level of consistency or depth that Nietzsche had. Where other thinkers fall short, Nietzsche holds fast and stands as one committed to a deeply anti-democratic society for a few, unapologetic in his intensity and worth studying for saying the quiet part loud. Many books have come out on reactionary politics in the last few years. Few manage to be as systematic, rigorous, and thorough as Lacerdo's. It's a work of scholarship that absolutely deserves to be read and wrestled with for those interested in the biggest social and political problems of our time. It will be of interest not just to those interested in Nietzsche studies, but German and European historians, political and cultural theorists, and all those committed to better understanding some of the intellectual trends of our times. Currently, the book is only available in a very expensive hardcover from Brill, but a paperback edition from Haymarket is on the way and will be deeply rewarding to all those who decide to take the challenge to get through it. Lacerda was a scholar of the highest caliber, and this book is a testament to both his scholarly commitment to depth and rigor, as well as his political commitment to the emancipation of all those suffering under our present situation. Domenico Lacerda was an Italian Marxist historian and philosopher. He spent much of his life as a professor at the University of Urbino in Italy, and was active in both a number of academic and political groups in the Italian and international left. Highly prolific in his lifetime, a number of his books have been translated into English, including Class Struggle, a Political and Philosophical History, Liberalism, a Counter-History, War and Revolution, Rethinking the 20th Century, Hegel and the Freedom of the Moderns, and Heidegger and the Ideology of War community, death in the West. He died in 2018. Given the absence of the author, we found a few others to speak in his place on the text. Harrison Fluss received his PhD in philosophy at Stony Brook University. He is professor at Manhattan College, New York City, and wrote the introduction to the English edition of The Aristocratic Rebel. Daniel Tutt studied at American University and the European Graduate School. He teaches in the philosophy department at George Washington University. He reviewed the aristocratic rebel for historical materialism. Ronald Beener studied political theory at McGill University and Balliol College and has been a professor of political science at the University of Toronto since 1984. He is the editor of Hannah Arendt's Lectures on Kant's Political Philosophy and is the author of a number of books, most recently Dangerous Minds, Nietzsche, Heidegger, and the Return of the Far Right. Daniel Tutt, Harrison Fluss, and Ronald Boehner, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Good to be here. Same here. Hi, Stephen. Thank you. Yeah, so to kind of kick things off, um, I'm wondering if someone could maybe uh, introduce listeners to Domenico Lacerdo, um, particularly um, what were some of the key themes that showed up throughout his work, and what is the place of this book on Nietzsche within his larger collected works? Um, so I think I can help with that. Domenico Lacerdo was an Italian Marxist. He was born in 1941 and he died uh, tragically in 2018 of a, of a brain tumor. He was emeritus professor at the University of Verbino and president of Marx and Hegel societies in Italy. And I recommend David Broder's obituary piece in Jacobin. Um, for an overview of Lucerto's life and times. And it's really unfortunate that he died uh, because uh, he, he was really at the height of his intellectual powers. He just came out with this critique of Western Marxism, and his death is really a loss 
to Marxist uh, theory and scholarship. Uh, he was a pioneering scholar of the history of philosophy, uh, particularly German idealism, of liberalism, imperialism, and class struggle. And publishers like Verso and Historical Materialism are committed to translating more of his work into English, including this uh, massive Hegel study that we really want to see come out. Uh, many scholars agree that it's really his Nietzsche, uh, the aristocratic rebel that constitutes his magnum opus and is probably his most important work that we're really going to talk about today. Uh, one more thing that I want to talk about uh, regarding Lacerdo's legacy is that there's a recent initiative called the Lacerdo Prize uh, from the University of Urbino and Lacerdo's family estate. It's calling for papers ranging from the history of philosophy to issues of colonialism, liberalism, and imperialism. And I want to just encourage students, professors, anyone to submit to it. First prize is a thousand euro, so that can buy you a lot of Marx books. <laughs> Yeah, so um, diving into this text in particular, um, it is not a standard commentary on Nietzsche. It really focuses a lot on the historical and intellectual and political context as a way of really unpacking uh, some of Nietzsche's thoughts. So I'm wondering if someone can maybe talk about Lacerdo's method of using context uh to this extent beyond, you know, a typical biography or what a typical biography would to make sense of Nietzsche's thought. Yeah, go ahead, Harrison. Sure. I can. I just, for some more introductory remarks, uh, Lacerdo's method is grounded in historical materialism. So it's a method that doesn't want to leak beyond the epoch of a thinker, in this case, uh, Frederick Nietzsche, such leaps can risk a kind of what Lacerdo would call a postmodern reductionism, which treats Nietzsche as merely a metaphoric thinker or another kind of reductionism that just directly relates him to the 20th century without considering the 19th century context. So Lacerdo really wants to clarify the historical epoch of someone like Immanuel Kant or Hegel or Nietzsche and what motivated them to philosophize, and how many of those ideas are shaped by material relations. Uh, this doesn't mean for Lacerdo that ideas are reducible to those relations. Uh, for instance, Plato or Wollstonecraft can still speak to us today, and their ideas can carry a kind of theoretical surplus, as Lacerdo calls it, that goes past their points of origin. But we need to relate philosophy to the culture and ideology of the times. And from there, we can start to relate, let's say, the culture of the 19th century to, let's say, what influenced something like uh, European fascism in the case of Nietzsche. I might add, I, I, I totally I really appreciate that um, laying out of the general methodology of Lacerdo's um, aristocratic rumble. I think readers are going to come to this text uh, expecting a biography. They're going to get something much more than that. Um, what we have here is a placing into context of the political and cultural and social dynamics following 1848 in Europe. And we have an introduction to not only the uh, 
primary ideas, the currents of thought that influence Nietzsche. Not only that, but we also are flung into a world of Nietzsche's world. Uh, what were the newspapers saying at the time? What was what were the prominent journalists saying at the time? What were uh, the the currents of thought that Nietzsche was not invested in per se, but which were um, running parallel to him? Right. So, uh, how, how does Nietzsche speak to to his own time? How is he situated in his own time? Is a very interesting thing, precisely because Nietzsche sought to make himself very untimely. So, in that sense, aristocratic rebel provides a kind of missing context. And so one of the big uh, themes in Nietzsche's scholarship is, is the notion of untimeliness and the notion that Nietzsche is can be read almost in an eternal or contextless way. So what Aristocratic Rebel does is, is radically situate Nietzsche. And in a way, what you learn as a reader is an in-depth portrait of late 19th century political life. Ronald, anything to add? Yeah, I, I, have, a, I have a few things to add. So, uh, and I think uh, the, uh, the observations by, by Harrison and Daniel were extremely helpful. And, uh, uh, but um, I, one, one thing I'd like to add is that uh, a kind of con- contextualist approach to Nietzsche can sometimes have <clears throat> A kind of apologetic dimension. So I don't know if you look, for instance, at Robert Holop's uh, chapter on e- eugenics uh, in his uh, recent book Nietzsche in the 19th Century. So he's contextualizing Nietzsche. There was this whole elaborate uh, discourse of eugenics. Nietzsche embraced eugenics, but Nietzsche sort of gets lost in his context, and it doesn't. His his embrace of eugenics doesn't have quite the, you know, shock effect, or doesn't seem as radical when you contextualize him. Well, that's uh, I think very much to his credit that can never be said of Lucerto. His way of contextualizing Nietzsche doesn't have any apologetic dimension uh, whatsoever, and thank as thankful that he, it doesn't. Um, and uh, uh, yes, Nietzsche was a. a, a thinker of his own own time and was immersed in the thought of the 19th century but he Nietzsche was looking for uh, looking ahead to try and shape the world of the future and he had his mind not just on the 19th century but very, very much on the 20th century in the 21st century in the 22nd century and there was a project here that was intended to stretch uh, centuries into the future and again I think you know there's a way of doing contextualism um, uh, that uh, mutes the force of nature or de-radicalizes him or does apologetics on his behalf. And uh, Lizardo never does that. He's, he's, I think he's tr- his kind of contextualism is trying to insert Nietzsche in the whole history of European reaction, stretching from centuries, from before the 19th century and stretching forward to the 20th century and beyond. And uh, I think he's very alive to uh, Nietzsche's wanting to, you know, shape thought and shape culture well beyond his own time. So yeah, the contextualism is crucial for understanding where Nietzsche was coming from and who influenced him and what what his intellectual milieu was and all those things are essential for understanding a thinker. But there was much more at, at, at stake here than just 
you know, responding to 19th century debates. And, you know, I don't think that um, one, one can fault Lacerda at all for over-contextualizing Nietzsche, but some of the other commentators, uh, I think, can, can be so uh, faulted. I mean, Hugo Drachon would be another example of someone who's, you know, is concertedly contextualizing approach to Nietzsche, but with a kind of a uh, sometimes apologetic spin. And uh, I think it's the strength of, 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 uh, of Lizardo that he's contextualizing in a way that avoids any kind of possible apologetics uh, on behalf of Nietzsche. Yeah, absolutely. Um, to dive into the text a little bit more, uh, one of the first things Lacerdo explores is Nietzsche's struggle against Socratism, particularly in his early text on tragedy. And here, Lacerdo argues that recent political events in France, like the Paris Commune, are a key for understanding this text. So given Nietzsche is more prone at this point to broad historical survey why are recent events in France so important for understanding this text in Lacerdo's view? I can take a, a stab at that one. So the Paris Commune Lacerdo emphasizes and really shows was a, a very transformative event. I mean, but, but that has to also be given proper context. Why was it transformative? Well, in part, the communards that took to the streets of Paris and overthrew the government uh, represented a legacy of Socratism insofar as they represented an impulse of egalitarianism, which as a philologist, Nietzsche was going to locate in the Socratic moment. So Socrates becomes a kind of um, world historical figure that is also imminently present within the socialist and communist movements of his time, right? And I think that that emphasis is, is revealed in many of the letters uh, that Nietzsche exchanges with some of his um, early uh, friends and, and, and colleagues uh, as a young student, right? So uh, we, we get a reaction to the Paris Commune, for example, where he, he, uh, Nietzsche says, this is the saddest day of my life because there was a rumor that all of the communards had burned down the art in the Louvre and Nietzsche was 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 tragically uh, responding to this moment. So uh, what I think is very nice about situating this is also, of course, that Nietzsche was involved in the Franco-Prussian War, which was related to this uprising, and that um, in the post-1848 milieu of Germany, uh, you know, the social uh, democracy government and the workers' movements around it uh, were, were, were creating... A, a dynamic of a kind of dichotomy within the human being. And so very early on, um, Nietzsche diagnosed a specific type of human being, what he called the theoretical human being, that was posing a threat to uh, take over Europe, right? So in the same way that Marx and Engels saw the division between bourgeoisie and proletariat almost in Manichean terms at times, Nietzsche was going to provide an alternative uh, form of Manichean division within humanity. And Socrates became the locus of this egalitarian rationalist spirit against what Nietzsche would eventually develop as the party of life, right? So in that way, you already see a kind of interesting parallel with Marx and Nietzsche already early on. Arnold, uh, I think you have something to add. 
Well, it's very short, and it's uh, was part, partly already covered by Stephen. So clearly, the Paris Commune was tremendously uh, traumatizing for Nietzsche. So I believe in that letter in which he referred to the rumor about the burning of the Louvre. Uh, Nietzsche, I think, said something like, "I cried for days," you know, <laughs> and uh, so you know he clearly had a vision of you know the the rise of the workers in Europe that this would put an end to a culture. And yes, I think Stephen's right, it's Manichaean. There are these two grand alternatives. There's the, you know, the, the, the reign of the herd on the one side, as he saw it, that's what socialism was for him and liberalism too, for that matter. And on the other side, uh, culture, you know, uh, writ large. And, uh, and he was on the side of culture. And in order for culture to be defended, liberalism and socialism and and the whole egalitarian dispensation of uh, 19th century Europe had to be defeated and the stakes were super high and this is this was the ultimate um you know uh cultural battle and uh so the the Paris commune are really uh focused or um encapsulated that cult- cultural uh struggle and uh and Lizardo is absolutely right that this this preoccupation runs through the whole of Nietzsche's work, and you can't begin to understand Nietzsche by abstracting from that or depoliticizing him. It was political through and through because the fight for culture was a political battle, and uh, I think you know Lizardo is one hundred percent the right to to give give that the focus that he does and devote a thousand pages to it. Harrison, did you have something to add? I think it's worth mentioning that this year is the 150th anniversary of the Paris Commune. And that when Nietzsche was freaking out about these rumors given to him by Jacob Burkhardt, he wasn't the only one freaking out. Renan, Hippolyte Taine, George Sand, Flaubert, you had an entire constellation of so-called liberal intellectuals that were scared to death and they started to become much more upfront and authoritarian in their thinking dealing with this new phase of class struggle and it's interesting Lacerdo says that a different title for the birth of tragedy could be the crisis of culture from Socrates to the Paris Commune because Socrates's theoretical optimism focuses on worldly happiness for Nietzsche at the expense of true culture, that it's this idea that we can know the world and hence change the world for the better. And that kind of shallow optimism for Nietzsche is totally incompatible with culture, which uh, rests in a Dionysian mystery. And that with this abolition of um, culture for Nietzsche, um, also comes the abolition of slavery. And, and we can talk more about that soon, I think. Yeah, moving right along. So from here, Lacerdo traces a steady development of Nietzsche's towards what we might call the mature aristocratic radicalism that Lacerdo is trying to track down and develop. So what were the key stages in this development? And more importantly, what was the underlying arc that unifies this trajectory? Uh, for Lacerdo and for Nietzsche. Harrison? 
Sure. Uh, so in terms of the, the unifying arc, it's in opposition to socialism. That is the red thread for Lacerdo that connects the various phases of Nietzsche's thinking. So to go into the four stages um, that Lacerdo talks about, the first stage is what we would call his young Wagnerite, Schopenhauerian phase. This is the so-called metaphysical stage. Uh, here we can consider the birth of tragedy, our main text, and this is where Nietzsche denounces the hubris of reason and mass society. This is also the period where Nietzsche writes of the international hydra of Franco-Jewish leveling and the cultural shallowness of Latin civilization. He's very Judeophobic in this phase. Um, there's a second stage which Lacerdo calls the solitary rebel stage, where Nietzsche is criticizing uh, a kind of Burkean conservatism, a kind of populism that's stuck in the traditionalism of the past and has too many hopes in the people as being a source for cultural regeneration. This is an individualistic model of counter-revolution needed to fight the herd. And you see this primarily in untimely meditations. Uh, the third stage is the so-called Enlightenment middle period. And I think it's important to know for Lacerdo, this really isn't a authentic kind of Enlightenment philosophy. It's a kind of fake positivistic Enlightenment. And Nietzsche uses um, this idea of skepticism and, and reason to debunk um revolutionary movements and ideas of the enlightenments that center around equality and justice. He wants to debunk these as unscientific to make the enlightenment safe from uh, democracy and, and radicalism. So this is why Nietzsche dedicates his books to Voltaire, uh, like human all to human uh, while he attacks Rousseau and socialism. And then in the last phase um, after his break with Paul Ray, Nietzsche turns against enlightenment itself as a species of slave morality, uh, that even something as abstract as causality can be a force for radicalism, Jacobinism, socialism. So it's not only Rousseau's general will, but something like Descartes' cogito is responsible for socialism, this idea that we are all thinking human beings. And Nietzsche thinks this idea of the human or even the idea of the concept harbors these ideas of equality that must be destroyed, uh, that future socialist revolutions cannot be fought with mere positivistic skepticism. You, you need a, a new kind of knowledge, a new kind of gospel pro, uh, proclaimed by Nietzsche Zarathustra. So this is the, the final phase uh, of mature aristocratic radicalism, which has broken from any form of slave morality. Lacerdo. So there's a trajectory, there's an evolution, there's a, there's a momentum, and it heads towards what we know really as Nietzsche proper, the, the text of Zarathustra, Antichrist, Twilight of the Idols, Eke Homo. Yeah, Ronald, do you have something you want to add? Yeah, yeah, just a few words. So uh First of all, the, the label uh, aristocratic radicalism, uh, this didn't come from Lizardo, it didn't even come from Nietzsche. It was coined by uh, the 
Danish literary critic Georg uh, Brandes, and uh, who was had some relations with Nietzsche, and they corresponded. He put this to Nietzsche, and Nietzsche embraced it, embraced it quite warmly, thought it was an appropriate label, and does indeed capture, you could arguably, the, the core of Nietzsche, which is a, a, a rebirth of aristocracy. And, you know, I think it's important to reflect on why so much hangs on the French Revolution. Um, uh, well, the French Revolution was a kind of delegitimization of aristocracy in Europe. And Nietzsche was very clear-sightedly saw that that's what was at stake. He said he referred to it as the kind of plebeian, plebeian revolt against the last aristocracy in Europe. And without aristocracy, from Nietzsche's point of view, there is no culture. And he was determined to not just accept, accept it as a fetic. I mean, for most People in Europe, I mean, there were critics of the French Revolution like Burke, but for most Europeans, um, the, 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 the French Revolution, you know, leaving aside the bloodshed and the guillotine, but, but in terms of its principles, represented a higher, higher justice, and there was no going back. And once one had established the, the pillars of an egalitarian political culture, that this was a definitive outcome. Well, it wasn't a definitive outcome for Nietzsche. I mean, again, there are others who, for whom, you know, it was still kind of an open struggle, uh, whether, 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 you know, pre-French Revolution, post-French Revolution. Maester, for instance, was, was not saying, well, you know, uh, aristocracy is, is, is dead in perpetuity. But uh, Nietzsche, I think there was a, a, a willingness to um, uh, uh, do whatever is required to undo the French Revolution. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, we need a kind of counter-revolution. And we need, a, a, you know, Nietzsche looked at Europe and saw a civilizational crisis and welcomed, welcomed that because he thought only a, a, an epical uh, 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 struggle would, would be able to get us back to 1789. And uh, so I think those Nietzsche understood those stakes uh, very clearly, and that that's the meaning of aristocratic radicalism. I mean, the 20th century came to be called conservative revolution because it would take a, a, a bona fide uh, cultural revolution to uh, dismantle the the uh, egalitarian dispensation that the French Revo Revolution had established. Yeah, moving right along, uh, one thing that comes up throughout the text in a number of different ways is anti-Semitism, which was, of course, a major element of Nietzsche's cultural and intellectual milieu. As Nietzsche's own thought developed, so did his thinking on Jews and all the issues surrounding Jews, especially in 19th century Europe. So can we unpack some of what Lacerdo finds here? Um, yeah, I think one of the most important concepts that Lacerdo uh, offers apropos how Nietzsche saw racialization or racism as such, for which we could kind of include anti-Semitism into that, of course, uh, was, is what he calls transversal racialization. So the idea here is a version of, race, of racialization that Nietzsche championed in which uh, kind of going back to that dichotomization of humanity we, we mentioned before, um, the objective is to divide humanity along well-formed and the ill-formed, right? 
So it's not the same type of essentialization of anti-Semitism that we see, for example, in Wagner, right? It's not a type of anti-Semitism that is taking, you know, Jewish capitalist class in total, right? Rather, it's trying to uh, kind of return to an Old Testament division of humanity and pulling a lot from kind of Schopenhauer's interest in the Indian caste system, uh, what is called the Chandala class, which for those of us who know Zarathustra know that Chandala is mentioned there and elsewhere. Um, so the objective of society for Nietzsche should be one in which racial caste systems are imminently determined. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that all Jews are X or all Jews are, are it's, it's too vulgar for Nietzsche to divide uh, humanity like that. So what we have is, is kind of a, um, uh, uh, a division uh, which, from which the, the, the Ubermensch emerges as well. Right. So the notion from you that have chosen yourselves will grow the overman. Um, the idea is, is that antagonisms of society ought to provide a naturalization of the division of an underclass, which should be willing to sacrifice uh, uh, for the ultimate goal of the preservation of leisure time for the elite. Right. So society had to be transformed in order for those conditions of division to, to transpire. So I, th I think that's the best way I understand uh, Nietzsche's very complex sort of theory of how racialization should be determined. Ronald, do you have uh, anything you want to add on this topic? Yeah, uh, I think it's uh, an important part of the context here that Nietzsche's supposedly favorable attitude towards the Jews uh, has been used as a crucial uh, pillar of Nietzsche apologetics for a very long time. And uh, it really ab abstracts from interesting and sometimes damning complexities in Nietzsche's stance towards the Jews. I mean, the defenders of Nietzsche refer to him as a philo-Semite, uh, which is really going way too far. I mean, in, in one of his last books, uh, The Antichrist, he refers to the Jews as the most catastrophic people in history hitherto. Well, that's those are not the words of a philo-Semite. Uh, and a crucial text, Beyond Good and Evil, uh, Section 251, you know, there is kind of very, he, he, he uh, embraces the Jews as part of his eugenic project for the uh, breeding of a European ruling caste, as he puts it but, you know, on the base of very crude, crude stereotypes. And there's some really important discoveries made by Lacerdo. Uh, I mean, during his Wagnerite years, he documents that Nietzsche was an outright anti-Semite, and this was, uh, you know, covered up uh, by generations of, of uh, editors and commentators. Um, and uh, it, it's to the extent where the, the, the two Wagners themselves were kind of shocked by how blatant Nietzsche was uh, with respect to anti-Semitism. So, and it never completely went away. And, and uh, you know, but again, it's, it's, the story's been twisted. And I think Lucerto's really, by attending more, care, more carefully to the text than anyone has done previously, really set the record straight on, on the question of Nietzsche and the Jews. Uh, and, and some of these um, uh, ideas in Lizardo have uh, been developed 
turned into a whole book by by Robert uh, Holub. Uh, so uh, that there's kind of a, a lot there, and it's crucial precisely in relation to the apologetic function it served uh, uh, for people who, who are concerned to defend Nietzsche. Harrison, I see your hand up. Do you have something you want to add? Uh, just, just briefly, uh, I want to touch on the elements of personal and intellectual biography that Lacerda talks about. And just to piggyback on what Ronnie was saying, uh, the young Nietzsche was violently anti-Semitic. Uh, there's evidence of this in his correspondence with Elizabeth, a correspondence that Elizabeth herself didn't publish at the turn of the century. So this idea that Elizabeth is this Rasputin-like figure who was making her brother into this uh, demonic anti-Semite isn't true. She didn't publish that correspondence. The other thing that wasn't published was this lecture called Socrates and Tragedy, where Nietzsche talks about the Socratic spirit of today is being incarnated in the Jewish press. And this is what Richard and Cosima Wagner were concerned about, that they agreed with Nietzsche that this is a problem, but they didn't want him to be explicit. So this starts to give Nietzsche's writings a bit more of an esoteric flavor. And this is also why Lucerto is looking at not just what's published, but also what isn't published. And what isn't published in the notebooks tends to be much more explicitly anti-Semitic, especially about someone like David Strauss. The other thing that I think we should mention is that Nietzsche, even when he broke with Wagner, uh, his praise of Jewish people is tinged with all kinds of elitist and racist elements. He prefers the Jewish kings to the prophets, or when Jews had a state capable of waging war. This is all before the Babylonian captivity. But with the arrival of the prophets, came slave moralism. And he kind of agrees with Ernst Renan when Renan says that it's in the book of Isaiah that Christianity is, is born. And this is a key source of modern subversion. And it's not for nothing that Nietzsche in the genealogy of morals calls for a war of Rome against Judea to be resumed. So that's basically what I wanted to say about that. Yeah, moving right along, at a number of points, Lacerdo brings Marx into the story to present a contrasting viewpoint, although interestingly, the two have been shown uh, historically to have some parallel ideas regarding what are often called the hermeneutics of suspicion, although it's from these parallels and intersections that Lacerdo is able to clarify both of their positions by seeing where and why they diverge, particularly regarding questions of political economy as well as their studies of ideology and religion. So can we unpack some of these parallels as well as the points at which they branch off from one another? Um, Harrison, I see your hand up. Yeah, just quickly, uh, the comparison to Marx is interesting for Lacerdo since the substance of Nietzsche's philosophy for Lacerdo, we can call it the kind of identity within the differences politics. Uh, The young Nietzsche put it in his correspondence that politics is now the organ of thought in its totality. And Lacerdo even goes so far as to say that Nietzsche is even more of a political thinker than Marx. So how is this possible? While Marx tried to establish the scientific and objective character of his critique of political economy, Nietzsche argued that scientific objectivity has something plebeian about it. 
and its optimistic drive to understand the world, it's revealed to be a subversive project for changing the world. And Marx says in the 11th thesis of Feuerbach that the theoretical insight, the point is the premise and socialism to change the world is the conclusion. Nietzsche, according to Lacerdo, reverses the syllogism, making politics the premise and objectivity only a rationalization of a particular form of life. And there's also parallels in the fact that for Nietzsche, history is the history of the struggle between different estates, different castes, and Marx and Engels in the, in the manifesto will talk about all written history as the history of class struggle. So there is that parallel as well. Anyone else have anything they want to add on this or should we move on? All right, seeing nothing. Um, so perspectivism is often credited to Nietzsche and it's often seen as being a subversive uh methodology in a way that is useful for those fighting for emancipation. But interestingly, Lacerdo argues that Nietzsche's perspectivism was developed with a very different political intention in mind. So what does Lacerdo see in perspectivism and the kind of hidden political baggage that has often been ignored? Uh, Daniel? Yeah, so I can can discuss this. So, you know, one of the really nice uh, contextualizations that Lacerdo makes here is is a debate around a political epistemology following the French Revolution and the way in which there was a kind of uh, dispute amongst a lot of liberal philosophers about the status of the realism of Jacobin forms of equality, right, versus more nominalist, which so thinkers like de Tocqueville um, were very much opposed to the very definition of equality having a kind of realist status. And uh, in his early reading of Schopenhauer, Nietzsche kind of fell back on this nominalist option. But what Lacerdo shows is that Nietzsche ultimately, and he's of course credited with uh, inventing a form of thinking through perspectivism here, which is actually a break from the realist nominalist debate, which was going on amongst political philosophers of the time. So perspectivism was a way in which uh, for Lacerdo, which also, of course, has an entire consequence of the eventual development of the retur- eternal return of the same, right? So there's a whole theory of time, which is developed here. But what Lacerdo shows, I think, in a very nice way, is the way in which perspectivism was itself um, a refined epistemological approach that was seeking to retain a certain form of aristocratic individualism, Right. Because the consequences of this debate had everything to do with the post-French revolutionary status of a certain form of egalitarian relationship to the status of real universals, right? And so perspectivism was a a, a radical um, break. And part of that we should also add, which I think Harrison mentioned before, is that it's very therefore very necessary to also make a philosophical assault on the history of Cartesian rationalism in so doing. And so what you have um, for Nietzsche is the way in which the the legacy of Cartesian rationalism, which we saw um, obviously through Spinozism and also in Hegel, uh, was a general support of the theoretical human being, of this kind of proposal of a form of equality 
uh, uh, which propose the notion that thought holds the capacity for the modification of existence, right? So perspectivism was a way to fundamentally push back on the idea of consciousness uh, thought of as a rationalist project. So what I liked about that was we often are, are um, engaged with these metaphysical notions of Nietzsche um, outside of that very specific post-French revolutionary context. So that was very, very useful to me, right? To sort of see it framed that way. Yeah, moving right along, um, it has at times been suggested that Nietzsche was a sort of intellectual predecessor of the Nazis. Uh, Lucerto doesn't quite go this far, but he does see certain thematic connections between the former and latter. So in what ways does he think we can uh, fairly read certain ideas in Nazism back into Nietzsche or argue that there was some sort of uh, vague but undeniable influence going on? And Ronald, I see your hand up. So, Yeah, I can uh, get us started. <clears throat> so we might as well go to the beginning of the story, so to speak. So in 19, I mean, it's very familiar to anyone who's acquainted with Nietzsche, but you know, I don't know who will be watching this podcast, so I might as well assume nothing. Uh, in 1950, uh, Princeton philosopher Walter Kaufman uh, published an extremely influential book called Nietzsche, Philosopher, Psychologist, Antichrist, in which offers a very ambitious rehabilitation of Nietzsche. Of course, in the first half of the 20th century, Nietzsche was associated with things uh, that were turned out to be politically catastrophic. And Kaufman really uh, pioneered the, you know, the kind of rehabilitation of Nietzsche in the face of any connections he might have had with fascism. Very successful uh, a project on Kaufman's part. Uh, he, he it, the, the dominant Nietzsche became a Nietzsche who was uh, benign or even considered uh, emancipatory in various ways. And then in the later decades of the 20th century, you could say the French Nietzscheans uh, radicalized uh, kind of the picture of Nietzsche as, uh, as, as, you know, belonging to the left as an emancipator. Uh, and uh, most importantly, I guess, Foucault, Derrida, and Deleuze. And this, again, kind of further entrenched this picture of Nietzsche, who had no connections with uh, the right or the far right, who had no connections with fascism, that supposedly this was totally unfair to, uh, to Nietzsche. Well, I, I think Lazardo's book is easily the most ambitious, you know, uh, return to sanity, I think, uh, that so much in Nietzsche's writings and really the, the intellectual core of Nietzsche is, has to be cast aside because Nietzsche's shouting from the rooftops his hatred of equality, of liberalism, of democracy, of socialism, of women's rights, of, you know, and uh, it it's, it's, uh, articulates so clearly and unmistakably in Nietzsche, it, it requires a real, really willful um, uh, uh, determination to uh, sanitize and domesticate and liberalize Nietzsche and whitewash Nietzsche. 
And it's very important uh, to kind of see what the fascists of the first couple of decades of the 20th century saw very clearly that Nietzsche is, is their guy. And he, he uh, helped in, inspire uh uh, the uh, the you know the politics of the right in in the in the twenties and thirties and every Lacerdo's absolutely right every leading fascist understood Nietzsche to be um, um, uh, the inspirer of their politics uh, including Hitler and Lacerdo very thoroughly documents affinities between uh, Nietzsche the key themes in Nietzsche central themes in Nietzsche. And and themes in in Hitler and in the leading Nazis, and it's all spelled out. And anyone who reads those pages, I think, has to own up to it that that uh, that Nietzsche Nietzsche had a political project. The political project was the overthrowing of the egalitarian dispensation that was ruling Europe, and and the fascists were the executors of that project. I mean, it doesn't mean to say Nietzsche would have been happy with every, you know, everything that the fascists or the Nazis did. But in some broad sense, their political revolution was a Nietzschean revolution. They understood it. And and uh, I think it's a major service politically and intellectually for Lizardo to, you know, force Nietzsche's defenders to, to kind of actually go back and, and look at the text and what's central to the text. I guess I'll hand it over to Harrison now. I could I could go on much longer, but I shouldn't. Well, thank you, Ronnie. That was great. Um, I think Lacerdo is, is careful to situate Nietzsche in the context of the Second Reich before he makes any connections to the Third. But there are connections, and he doesn't shy away from making them. It's true that if you want to criticize Nietzsche as a reactionary, there's enough rope that the Second Reich provides. You don't necessarily need the piano wire of the third, but the piano wire is there nonetheless. So Nietzsche's anti-nationalism was an appeal to empire. He found nationalism too democratic. And it's not obvious that Hitler was simply a nationalist since he had megalomaniacal dreams of empire too, and sometimes compared himself to a Roman emperor of Nero. The Nazis had pan-European aspirations and wanted to rule the planet, not just Germany. And this would be the right scale of ambition for someone like Nietzsche, what he calls grand politics. And then to see Nietzsche, as we said, is simply philosemitic, is very one-dimensional. And then Lacerdo shows why this is simplistic. Uh, Lacerdo points out that a proto-Nazi like Houston Stewart Chamberlain didn't condemn all Jewish people, but that still doesn't make his thinking any less anti-Semitic. And Nietzsche himself thought that only some wealthy German Jewish families should be selected to interbreed with the families of Prussian aristocrats in order to make these new racial castes. Indeed, Nietzsche condemns any further immigration of Jews to Germany and also has many nasty things to say about Eastern European Jews. He had no problem praising the czar and looked forward to spotting on one of his vacations the heir apparent Nicholas II. The Russian state was extremely anti-Semitic and encouraged programs against Jews, something Nietzsche never condemns. And Lacerdo points out that Nietzsche supported the pretender Napoleon V to the French throne, known for being very militaristic and anti-Semitic. 
And we should also look at how revolutionary conservatives close to Nietzsche's ideas like Ernst Junger or Julius Evola acted in the Weimar Republic in the Third Reich. Ronald, I see you say you got something else you want to add. Yeah, I just want to uh, emphasize that the, the task undertaken by Lucerto in pushing back against the Nietzsche of the postmodernist left uh, uh, is become has become far more urgent, actually, in uh, recent years. So, uh, you know, it should be noted that the the book was written originally uh, published published in Italy in its original edition nearly 20 years ago. Well, you know, uh, a lot has happened in, in the last 20 years or even the last five years. And, and this is relevant to how Nietzsche stands and, and, and political functions performed by Nietzsche. So I, I have kind of next to my computer here, a, a quote I'd like to read from Connor Cruz O'Brien. This was from lectures he delivered in the late 1960s. It was very prescient. He wrote, the Nazis needed a fierce Nietzsche and found him without any difficulty. In the decades after the defeat of Nazi Germany, that Nietzsche became unacceptable. And a gentle Nietzsche was offered to the post-war public, namely Kaufman's Nietzsche. But I suspect that we have not done with Nietzsche and that the fierce Nietzsche may be due for a revival. Well, with the rise of right populism, we've actually seen, uh, you know, uh, Cruz O'Brien's uh, prophecy uh, get, get moved closer to realization, as I try and sketch in my Dangerous Minds book, uh, kind of leading figures within the far-right intelligentsia uh, are very open about their Nietzscheanism. Uh, several of them, including Richard Spencer, you know, boast that there was... Uh, reading Nietzsche that first inspired them to become fascists. And so insofar as we're seeing the, the kind of renewed neo-fascism in our own time, and again, this is like nearly 20 years after the publication of Lizardo's book, it's more important than ever that we have our eyes open to how Nietzsche uh, is read by fascists or by uh, potential fascists or fasc people could become fascists because the reading of Nietzsche sets off something in them. And it's, so this isn't just a problem of the first two decades of the 20th century. It's also a major problem for us in the first two decades and the coming decades of the 21st century. And uh, so I think the importance of Luzerto's book of setting the record straight with respect to the political, you know, valency of Nietzsche this has become more important than ever. If you kind of just look around, have your eyes open to the rise of the rights and and, and the far right uh, in Europe, in the United States, and 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 how Nietzsche inserts himself into that, and how he's received by by people who see themselves as a kind of intellectual vanguard for a revived far right. Yeah. So moving right along. At several points, Lacerdo brings Nietzsche into dialogue with other thinkers to clarify Nietzsche's own position. So we've already discussed Marx to some degree, but at certain points, Lacerdo brings Nietzsche into dialogue with uh, the conservative uh, Edmund Burke, as well as the liberalism of John Locke. So at first glance, it might seem tempting to put them into similar categories. Uh, Lacerdo argues that truly understanding Nietzsche means 
realizing that his aristocratic radicalism is a very unique and even at times insightful position in a way that these alternatives are not. So what does Lacerdo see as being unique to Nietzsche here, and how does it set him apart from other positions that might have reactionary elements, but not quite the same level of consistency or depth that Nietzsche brings to the table? I can say something briefly to start kick it off here. I mean, I think that one of the nice contributions of aristocratic rubble is placing Nietzsche's theory of individualism into a certain contrast uh, and seeing, yes, Stephen, you're right, you know, liberal philosophers like de Tocqueville, Locke, or Mill by no means are embracing this radical aristocratic project. Yet, Lucerto, I think, does a service to studying the historical record right as it pertains to Locke, Mill, uh, and de Tocqueville, for example, uh, a support for things like imperialism, right? But support for imperialism as a specific way, although not as strong as Nietzsche's, right, for the preservation of exceptional individuals. So where they both agreed was that liberal society needs to be one in which we have reserved the space for exceptional geniuses and individuals. And of course, there's also a profound Eurocentrism there because the places in which Europe was colonizing um, uh, uh, foreclosed the possibility for exceptional greatness, right? Um, that's number one. Number two, where, where a lot of, uh, where Nietzsche did align with a lot of liberals was also in seeing imperialism, although also looking at slavery, which we can talk about, but just to look at imperialism for a moment, where they aligned was that imperialism also offered the opportunity for an imminent racial determination of the status of uneducated workers. So if we send the young workers off to fight in Africa or Asia or far off lands, they might have the opportunity to exert their greatness, right? So you see, you see this um, with not as strong of a contrast in liberal philosophers. So that was a very eye-opening contrast for me. All right, Ronald, I see you have your hand up. Uh, yeah, I'll try and keep this short. So specifically on Nietzsche and Burke. So in the in the discussion early in the book, in chapter two, I think Lizardo, uh focuses on certain affinities between Nietzsche and Burke with respect to their critiques of abstract rationalism in, in the Enlightenment. And sure enough, Burke was... A, uh, too, was uh, someone who was um, uh, shocked and appalled by the French Revolution. And, uh, uh, but, um, um, and, and so I think that's fair enough that in, in, uh, there, there is a kind of, uh, you know, uh, there is, this is an important theme in Nietzsche that the, the, uh, the, the, dominance of rationality over instinct is is uh, 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 has has bad cultural implications for Nietzsche and uh, helps to undermine nobility where and then again it's traced back to Socrates and everything is about rational argument and not about you know uh, 
uh, intuitions of higher and lower that are just uh, in, in uh, uh, inscribed in your being. So there, there are, I think it's reasonable to say there are some affinities with Burke, but politically, there really there's no um, uh, that really it's 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 there's no comparison here at all, and I'm I'm sure. Uh, you know, Lucero wouldn't suggest that there is. I mean, Burke was not even Tory. He was he he was a Whig. He was himself a, a product of the Enlightenment and part of the liberal tradition, and uh, and a critic of uh, British Empire. And uh, you know, I think the appropriate rubric under which to classify Nietzsche is, as I mentioned earlier, it's what came in the early twentieth century to be called the Conservative Revolution. That we need a civilizational upheaval to uh, undo the egalitarian uh, dispensation, and and uh, and that Nietzsche wants to, is is prepared to, you know, raise the stakes up the ante up to the up to the sky if that's what's required in order to reestablish our aristocracy, and, and uh, you know if that requires Caesarism, so much the better. I mean, Nietzsche, you know, Burke was a constitutionalist and relative to, you know, there's conservative things in, in Burke, but relative to Nietzsche, he's, he's, um, uh, he's, he's a liberal, you know? And um, uh, so I don't, one has to be careful. And I don't, I think Lazardo himself is careful that not to go overboard with comparisons between uh, uh, Nietzsche and, and, you know, conventional conservatives. I mean, Nietzsche, I, Thinks closer to Maestra, actually. Uh, you know, my for, one, one of my formulas for capturing Nietzsche is, you know, Maestra minus the Christianity. Uh, I, I'll hand it over to Harrison now. Yeah, Harrison, you have something to add? Well, I, I want to say that Lacerdo does a good job comparing Nietzsche and Burke in terms of Nietzsche's Wagnerite phase, so the more populist phase. And regarding Daniel's points about colonialism, what's interesting about Burke is that he's so concerned in the reflections on the French Revolution that these ideas of the rights of man will get back to the colonies and they're going to start revolt, revolting and they're going to become Jacobins themselves. And when we talk about Nietzsche and imperialism and colonialism, you should keep in mind that he is in favor of the free spirit being an imperial spirit when he talks about annihilating uh, decadent races, exterminating decadent races. This has a colonial tinge to it. Uh, this is something that should have echoes of Joseph Conrad, Exterminate the Brutes, in, in the book The Heart of Darkness. So when he's talking about destroying decadent races, he's, he's uh, using the word uh, vernictum, which has this element of physical eradication. It's not just destroying abstract ideas. And Nietzsche wants to learn from how um, indigenous people were treated by imperialism, and he has the Congo in mind in the Noclus. So there are affinities uh, between Burke, I think, as a uh, pro-colonizer in Nietzsche on this score, but of course Nietzsche takes it up a notch and becomes, I think, much more genocidal. 
Yeah, I, I totally, totally agree with Harrison on, on Nietzsche. I'm, I'm, uh, again, the, uh, softer on Burke, uh, than, than, than either Harrison or Stephen. Uh, 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 again, Burke, Burke was a supporter of the, uh, the American colonies vis-a-vis their, their conflicts with Britain and, in in his own culture was uh, one of the strongest critics of uh, abuses in and the British rule, rule in India. So, I mean, if one contextualizes Burke, he actually comes off pretty well in in relation to the whole question of colonialism and empire. Yeah. So moving right along, uh, one of the made. Sorry, did someone else? Did someone oh, else we have can something talk about Burke another time. I just wanted to emphasize <laughs> I, that his positions on the American Revolution were consistent with his positions on the French Revolution. People can uh, look at Lacerdo's book on liberalism for that. Yeah, I'm sure that's a whole other podcast we could do. But yeah, um, one of the major reasons for Lacerdo writing this book is that Nietzsche has been picked up by a number of thinkers, many without reactionary intentions but who in a variety of ways have pursued what Lacerdo calls the hermeneutics of innocence that has in various ways toned down Nietzsche's politics or removed them entirely. So how does Lacerdo see this happening through various forms of mistranslation or editing or just kind of selective reading? And why is the various unpolitical readings of Nietzsche that are out there uh, totally untenable for him? Um, I can... I can start us off with this. I think it's really important to understand that as a committed Marxist in an Italian setting, late 20th century, Lacerdo was very much a critic of left-wing versions of Nietzscheanism, Johnny Vattimo and others, although Vattimo is a primary um, opponent of Lacerdo's uh, view here. And I think at the end of the text, you get some really nice um, analyses of where the hermeneutics of innocence goes wrong and he blames a lot of translation issues, Elizabeth as, as one example, but others, of uh, even providing a very nice hermeneutic analysis himself of, of various passages. So I highly recommend the, the, the concluding chapters of the book for analysis of Nietzscheanism. But it's not only in the Italian context that he discusses. He also talks about French Nietzscheanism, uh, Foucault and Derrida. And where they go wrong in Lacerdo's view, especially, say, for Foucault, is that they make a diagnosis of the emergence of things like totalitarianism uh, vis-a-vis a kind of critique of Nietzsche, Nietzsche's critique of rationalism and kind of uh, bureaucratic categorization, right? Which, for, for the case of Foucault, uh, allows for Nietzsche to sort of provide a very useful insight that it gives an account of, of power, where I think Lacerda wants to correct the Foucauldian thesis of, of power, which Foucault's in part really influenced by Nietzsche, as we probably all know, is by contextualizing Nietzsche's critique of power in this very specific post-French revolutionary scene and reading Nietzsche um, as well as his philosophy, <laughs> uh, uh, A, as a political thinker, first and foremost, and B, as one who's trying to create a comprehensive philosophy in uh, uh, as in opposition to to these trends post French Revolution. So there's that. There, I will say at the conclusion in the appendix, 
there is a discussion of Derrida, but it's one would like to see uh, more elaboration because there's so much ground to cover. For example, the philosopher Gilles Deleuze, one of the most important late 20th century philosophers, is not discussed. And so there's many um, invitations that Los Cerdos text opens to other philosophers that might go back and do a reappraisal of this huge field of left Nietzscheanism. So a lot of that is not really uh, fully developed by Lucerto. Harrison, I see your hand up. Yeah, I think that it's true. Lucerto doesn't directly address Foucault or Derrida or Deleuze. But it's interesting that recently uh, we see more studies inspired by Lucerto coming out and essays that do address those particular thinkers. So uh, recently it was announced that Jan Raymond's book on left Nietzscheanism, which deals with Deleuze, uh, Derrida, and Foucault, that is in part inspired by Lucerto. That is coming into English. Very excited to, to talk about that. And Matthew Sharp just wrote an essay about Deleuze's book, Nietzsche and Philosophy, uh, directly inspired by Lucerto's book, The Aristocratic Rebel. But I also want to say that Nietzsche himself is involved in this process of infinite interpretation. Uh, he's not, he wasn't someone that wanted to hide from society or, or even the left, but was explicit about infiltrating democratic movements and using them for his own ends of aristocratic radicalism. This is demonstrated in Lacerdo, but also in, let's say, Jeffrey White's uh, Nietzsche's Corpse. The kind of irony and radicalism Nietzsche promotes seems attractive to people on the left. But what the hermeneutics of innocence does is detach the political effects from certain ideas like eternal return or the ubermensch. These concepts are not neutral. And they can make left-wing commitments uh, to egalitarianism or democracy incoherent. Uh, and Nietzsche manages to place ideas of rebellion on a more ethereal plane where socializing the means of production seems itself seems bourgeois and pedestrian compared to a more total or hyperbolic kind of revolt that will ignore human needs and, and happiness. Yeah, Ronald, I see you have your hand up too. I know you have thoughts on this, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, f two things. First of all, um, uh, at the end of your question, you say, why is the unpolitical Nietzsche an untenable one for him, for Lucerto? Well, I, I, I say it's, it's not that it's untenable for him. It's that the unpolitical Nietzsche just is untenable, full stop. And, and it's a kind of perversity of decades of Nietzsche scholarship and not Nietzsche reception that the, the unpolitical or apolitical or depoliticized Nietzsche has been considered in any way untenable because that's just, uh, uh, it's just perverse. I mean, uh, uh, and again, as I said at the beginning, it's a kind of return to sanity for which we're, we all should be extremely grateful to Lucerto. I mean, for Nietzsche, I mean, Lucerto's basic thesis, the thesis of the whole thousand-page book, is that Nietzsche is through and through political. And that is just plain correct. It's just accurate. I mean, uh, for, for Nietzsche, the core problem is that modern culture is not a real culture. 
Uh, I mean, Heidegger, as Heidegger put it, you know, modernity is a moribund pseudo-civilization. Well, that's exactly Nietzsche's view. And to correct that for Nietzsche requires a kind of, not just a cultural revolution, but a cultural political revolution, that we have to overturn a political dispensation in order to return to a culture that's a real culture, to return to a civilization that's a real civilization. And, and so the idea of abstracting from politics um, is just complete pulverization bold, of Nietzsche. And, and Lizardo's 100% on, on the target on this. And uh, again, I'd, I'd, I'd also, uh, I guess, second uh, 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 one of uh, uh, Harrison's suggestions that it, it would be, I think, a little misleading to suggest that you know, Lazaro is fighting this fight single-handedly, that it's, it's a kind of solo effort on his part to push back against unpolitical, depoliticized readings of Nietzsche. Uh, Jeff's, Jeff, Jeff Waite's book, Nietzsche's Corpse, very different kind of book from Aristocratic Rebel, but it is it, in its own way just as epic uh, and, and a, a uh, effort on be, on behalf of the good cause of, of you know restoring Nietzsche, restoring the politics to Nietzsche and pushing back against the left Nietzscheans. Uh, you know, Gwait uh, refers to them as pseudo leftists. If you're under the spell of Nietzsche, that's proof right there that you're a pseudo-leftist, and I think there's a lot of force to that. But it's not just weight. Uh, there have been other important uh, readings uh, among political theorists. Bruce Detweiler's uh, book uh, on, on Nietzsche, uh, Sheldon Wollen in, in the ch chapter on Nietzsche added to the expanded edition of Politics and Vision, Richard Wollen's Seduction of Unreason. So there are, you know, there is more of a, you know, um, a, a uh, you know, it's not, you know, Lucerto hasn't go gone to war in a kind of solo effort. There, there are other books that one could appeal to and, and learn from. And it's not just, you know, you know, Lizardo against the world. Uh, but, but the, you know, the, the, the majority of, Nietzsche commentators have been on the other side. And as I said earlier, it's more important now than ever with the return of the far right that we, we open our eyes to the politics in Nietzsche and not blind ourselves to it or, or delude ourselves into think that there's just no politics there. And it's shocking how many very intelligent, very learned people somehow have, uh, you know, fooled themselves into thinking that, that there's no politics there. Harrison, you have something you want to add? Yeah, I just want to say, independent of Lacerdo, Ronnie has made, I think, a major contribution to this discussion, to the scholarship in his book, Dangerous Minds. I think everyone should get a copy and really take seriously the, the two middle chapters on Nietzsche and Heidegger. And I think Ronnie does an excellent job showing that Nietzsche is a political thinker and that his ideas are incompatible with a leftist um, commitment to egalitarianism. Yeah. Um, so that brings us through kind of some of the main ideas uh, of the book. So I want to ask a final question of all of you. Where do you think this book leaves us? So clocking in at just over a thousand pages, it is 
uh, a pretty substantial contribution to a number of different fields, be it Nietzsche studies, continental philosophy, German history, political theory. So I'm wondering, uh, what do you think the book does that ought to be perhaps developed in a little more depth in the future, or maybe something you think the book uh, does incorrectly? Um, you know, in closing, uh, how do you think people ought to respond uh, to this book? Um, I can kick us off real quick. I, I, I think, personally speaking, I'd like to I'd like to see elaboration in, in, in a couple domains. The first is Nietzsche's critique of revolution. So the, the very proposal that the Frankfurt School kind of really initiated of fusing uh, Marx with Nietzsche, I think Lacerdo shows that Nietzsche's theory of revolution was that revolution is, is uh, incapable, that there's a kind of, there's, a, there's an impossible uh, cathartic moment at the at the core of any revolutionary uprising that it's uh, there's so so therefore Nietzsche's pessimism um, pushes a Marxist oriented uh, praxis uh, to to sort of really question whether it's even feasible to to have a partner in thinking political revolution with Nietzsche. I think Lacerda makes the case that it's not uh, not even feasible. Yet, we, as we've kind of articulated, Nietzsche is also a thinker of praxis. In other words, he's a thinker of organization of alternative communities, right? So I think there's a lot, and you see this um, in other works, I'm thinking here of the anti-Nietzsche text, um, where, where it's very, I think, important to look at the way in which categories like the proletariat um, must actually be thought in an explicitly anti-Nietzschean mode, uh, given this profound pessimism. So that's one area. I think the other area that I'd like to see more work is on the unifying theme of otium et bellum, or the preservation of leisure time for the aristocratic elite, which Lacerdo really, really emphasizes the significance of this concept for Nietzsche. And I'd like to see how that mm, category of leisure time fits in with new proposals by socialist authors like Martin Hagelin in his book, This Life which really centers the importance of, of, of rethinking of the importance of leisure time as a more universal uh, good and the way in which Nietzsche becomes a strong opponent to any form of egalitarian theory of leisure time for the masses, right? So those are two, two areas, but there's many more also, of course, the way in which we can go back and unearth the metaphysics of Nietzsche with this new centered perspective on the political commitments, I think would be another really, really important task of scholarship. Uh, Harrison, you want to go next? Sure. Um, I have a few things to say, uh, but how the book will be received, I think, is an open question, especially the, the soft cover. But a likely answer is that there will be a kind of enforced ideological silence, if not some contempt for the book amongst Nietzscheans. Uh, these circles are mainly shaped by deconstructionism and saving Nietzsche for liberal democracy. So I think Lacerdo's claims is, are going to be uh, quite a shock for them. I really do hope they take the book seriously, but I have my doubts. I do have high hopes for the broader academic community and students especially those who are concerned with the rise of authoritarianism and fascism. 
Uh, Nietzsche is unfortunately making a comeback in so-called alt-right circles, as, as Ronnie pointed out. It's very necessary uh, to extend Lacerdo's analysis of Nietzsche to make sure to make sense of this. And I think the main takeaway from Lacerdo's book is that right-wing Nietzscheanism is a redundant phrase, but left-wing Nietzscheanism is an oxymoron. That doesn't mean, and I've seen this on social media, that Lacerdo's book wants to cancel Nietzsche. No, no one is saying don't read Nietzsche. No one is saying don't teach Nietzsche. I teach Nietzsche in my philosophy classes. No one's saying don't devote uh, your scholarly time to Nietzsche. Um, but what Lacerdo is saying is that while we can learn from Nietzsche, and there is a theoretical surplus to be gained from Nietzsche, we can't become and we shouldn't become Nietzsche. That's what he's saying. Ronald, do you want to close this off here? Yeah, briefly. So uh, when you, you know, ask what, what would you like to see? Well, I'd like to see people read Lizardo's book. And here I'm very much in agreement with, um, with, with Harrison. So I would hope that what it, reading, reading these thousand pages would lead to is people actually rethinking their reception of Nietzsche. But my fear, like Harrison's fear, is that the defenders of a liberal leftist and postmodernist Nietzsche's uh, are too, are by this point, too, too, too in, entrenched in those images of Nietzsche to really, uh, for, for Lizardo to have the effect on them that he have. Uh, I hope I'm wrong about that. I hope Harrison's wrong. But like him, I'm, I'm a little doubtful whether Lizardo will have the effect on the broader Nietzsche reception that you know, all three of us, I think, very much would like to see. Um, and just one one last quick thing about the theme of Nietzsche and revolution. And I think uh, Daniel's assumption seemed to be, well, revolution means, you know, egalitarian or leftist revolution. Well, there, you know, Nietzsche himself was a revolutionary and... And, and uh, uh, there are revolutions of the right. I mean, uh, Nazism, uh, 1933, was also a revolution. And and uh, that's what Nietzsche wanted. He wanted not revolutions that were bottom-up, revolutions of the people, but re- revolutions that were top-down by ru- ruthless rulers. And, and uh, you know, in, in, in that sense, it's, you know... <laughs> one revolutionary vision against another revolutionary vision. That's what, it's not an accident that, that followers of Nietzsche in the twenties and Weimar Germany called themselves, you know, uh, called, called their vision, their political vision, the conservative revolution. It was meant to be a, a, also revolutionary. Um, so I think that's kind of just a kind of quick, quick correction that, 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 you know, Nietzsche's anti-revolutionary, he's pro-revolutionary, but it, he wants an aristocratic revolution and, and not a, a, a liberal or socialist revolution. That's absolutely true. Yeah, I think there's a nice discussion there also of um, of the of the idea that an egalitarian revolution will always reproduce uh, and intensify resentment. So it's in that way that the objectives of left-oriented revolutionary projects must be fundamentally off the table. So it's therefore a beyond an irony to even fuse a revolutionary philosopher like Marx with Nietzsche is that that was kind of my point which is uh 
it, it's an odd couple. And I think that if, if we're lucky, this book will at least uh, uh, encourage Marxist thinkers that do find an ally in Nietzsche to at least reconsider that allyship. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the book is Nietzsche, the Aristocratic Rebel by Domenico Lacerdo. And uh, so that brings us to the end of my question. So Daniel Tut, Harrison Fluss, and Ronald Boehner, thank you so much for all being with us. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.